Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is not only a colleague, but very much a friend, Dr. Abigail Jacobson. Abigail is currently a senior lecturer in the Department of Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She published a number of uh, works, two important books. Uh, the first one, From Empire to Empire, Jerusalem between Ottoman and British rule, that goes back to 2011. But more importantly, a second book, which was published in, together with another scholar, Moshe Maor, Oriental Neighbors, Middle Eastern uh, Jews and Arabs in Mandatory in Palestine, which was published in 2016. Now, the long list of articles I'm not going to mention, many of them do focus on Jerusalem, particularly on the uh, topic and in the periods of World War I, but we will talk about them. Uh, but in the meantime, first of all, Abigail, welcome. Hi, Roberto. Thank you for having me. So the first question that I'll obviously ask all my guests is, Abigail, what is your Jerusalem? What is your connection with a city? So that's an interesting question for me because uh, I never lived in Jerusalem. Even now when I teach at the Hebrew University, I don't live in Jerusalem. Uh, the city for me is very stressful and I feel actually very foreign in it. Uh, I always did, by the way. Uh, I remember as a PhD student when I was working on my dissertation, uh, I took the bus from Tel Aviv where I live to Jerusalem. And when I uh, got off the bus, as I was approaching the central bus station, I always felt the urge of pulling out my passport. That's, you know, an indication of how, how foreign I felt. And then when I left the city, I always felt a sense of relief. Uh, it's interesting because my, again, my, the, the topic of my dissertation and then the book was about the city of Jerusalem in a very interesting point in time. And a, one would think, or one could think, that I'm in love with the city. So I'm actually in love with the city's history, not so much with the current uh, atmosphere and realities in the city and what it represents today. But it is a fascinating place, a place which one can discover, you know, new things every, every minute and every day. And every time I walk around the city or, you know, uh, either with someone who is very well familiar or is a local, or with guests coming from abroad, I always see different things that surprise me, that are strange for me, that are unfamiliar. So it's a city, a city full of, surprising, of surprises, but very, my feelings towards it are very, very ambivalent um, and very, very strange, actually. Definitely, I don't feel like a local in this city. 
I had the same feeling many times just to visit and feel like a stranger. And I am a stranger indeed. Uh, and I realized that I too, I'm in love with the history of a city and particularly at the moment, and I'm teaching a course on the history of Jerusalem. But one thing is to be in love with the history and one thing is to actually, you know, understand and love the city as it is uh, 21st century. Which brings me to ask a question about uh, how do you see the city from the hill of Hebrew University? Because Hebrew University is this, in this location that uh, had been even sort of some sort of an island, particularly in the years between 1948 and 67, when the city was divided, and always had some sort of a sense of isolation from the rest uh, of, of, of Jerusalem. And I was wondering, what's the view from there? So that's a good question. It's a, I'm located, the Hebrew University has um, four different campuses and I'm in one of them uh, in the Mount Scopus campus, which is, as you said, for many years was, was very, you know, geographically isolated from the rest of the city between 49 and, and 67. Today, obviously it's an integrated part of the city, but in many ways, I feel that uh, as a campus and for the students, it is still very isolated from the rest of the city. So, so the Mount Scopus campus is, uh, is located on the margins of, uh, uh, of the Western city and the Eastern city, let's say, from some windows, you can see uh, the holy, uh, all the holy sites, the old city. And on the other uh, side of campus, when you walk around uh, and uh, approach the the eastern side of the campus, you can actually see the desert, the Judea desert in a good day until the Dead Sea. But you can also see um, the eastern neighborhood of uh, the Palestinian eastern neighborhoods of the city and the Palestinian areas which are located behind the wall, behind the separation wall. So for example, Isawiya and Shoafat and Shoafat refugee camp, which is actually part of Jerusalem. And uh, for me, walking around on campus, it's a very, very interesting uh, experience. Um, uh, also, driving around campus, there is this, an interesting road that kind of surrenders, that in which you can actually, you know, drive around and see, uh, drive from the western part, see the western part, and then uh, Mount of Olives, and then going on all the way to the desert and Isawiya, French Hill, and then back to Mount Scopus in a way. And it's an interesting tour that I think also um, shows or demonstrates the different facets and the voices and people that are that are based and are seen uh, in in the campus itself. Because the Hebrew University campus today is uh, is full of students, obviously, but it's full of. Uh, the student population is very very heterogeneous and very um, diverse. And among the students you find, uh, for example, many Palestinians from East Jerusalem uh, who, are taking play, who are taking part in a special program that is run for the last, I would say, five, six years by the Hebrew University. A, a program that, uh, according to which um, those Palestinian students are admitted to a year of a, a preparatory year, and then they can be admitted to the university uh, based on their Taujihi uh, grades, not on their um, final 12 grades uh, exams at the Hebrew uh, system, at the Israeli system. So they can be admitted on, on based on their Taujihi grades, which, uh, which brings in uh, quite a lot of, uh, of Palestinian, of East Jerusalemites uh, students. Who, uh, who are spread and you know study all over in different on in the different campuses. I think there are many of them in our campus. Every year, I think the, there are around 400 students who are admitted to the university altogether. So on the one hand, you see many Palestinians from East Jerusalem. On the other hand, you see many soldiers and uh, and uh, many many soldiers and policemen who are participating in special programs funded by the army or by the police. Uh, and they are walking around campus with uniform, wearing uniform. And then you have uh, uh, all the other students, which are of course the usual diverse population, student population uh, of Israel or in Israel institutions, everyone like uh, Jews, Palestinian Arabs from the North, 
religious, secular, etc., etc. So that's a very diverse uh, student population. Um, and for me as a teacher and as a scholar working at the university, it's quite, a, it's quite challenging to, to teach in, a, in such a diverse uh, setting. It's challenging, but I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm up to the challenge and the university itself is trying to be up to the challenge. There is a lot of uh, emphasis on diversity and different plans and different uh, programs and projects that deal with diversity. And there's a special diversity. Um, there's one of the vice presidents of the university deals with diversity issues. Um, and, and I think that the, the, the main issue here is that despite the very diverse student population, still the uh, different groups are very remote from each other. There, it's very, very hard to bring together the Israeli and the Palestinian students, for example. It's very, very hard, uh, of course, obviously, to bring together the soldiers and some of the Israeli students, even not to mention, of course, the Palestinian students. So, the, so when I stand in class, I can definitely see like uh, blocks of students, like the soldiers block, the East Jerusalemite block, the secular block, the religious block, you know, and, uh, and my challenge, one of my challenges as a, as a teacher and as a lecturer is also to try and bridge between those different groups and make them communicate with each other, speak with each other, learn about each other, uh, while bearing in mind the sensitivities and the, you know, the big sensitivities and the, the big difficulties and challenges that they have in communicating with each other. And of course, needless to say, questions of power relations, which is very something that really, really is very central in my perception of uh, when, when, I, when I, you know, walk around campus and realize and talk with students. Questions of power relations, of course, are very, very central. Um, so in that sense, I think that Mount Scopus is still some kind of an isolated place in the city in general. Like it brings together all these different people, all of them or many of them live in the city or live around the city. But uh, the different, uh, the different uh, communities um, are still you know, fun function in isolation. They don't communicate and they don't uh, get in touch with each other as much as I would like them to. Uh, and then of course there are those students, those Israeli students or Jewish Israeli students who are, you know, who are, who have never been or who, who choose to ignore, to completely ignore uh, the setting of Jerusalem or the realities which uh, they see or they can look at and view from the window, different windows and of different halls at the university. They choose not to look at them. They choose not to study them. They choose not to confront them, those realities. And that's again, another challenge that I'm trying to overcome with my students as a scholar working at this particular campus. I guess it's hard to ignore, not to see the wall itself. I mean, as a visitor of Hebrew University, uh, th there is this kind of like uh, shocking punch in your belly the moment you reach the top and you turn and you gaze, you know, standing in front of a gate, you turn left and you see the wall and, and it's right there in front of you. So I, I guess it becomes very, it becomes, and it's a choice, as you said, it's, it's an act of uh, choosing not to see what's going on in there. But I was wondering about uh, the question of Sheikh Jarrah, which is obviously very contemporary, very important, uh, which is literally, for those who don't know, is literally five minutes away. It's just downhill and then uphill uh, the, the other side. And so I was wondering to what extent uh, the current events in Sheikh Jarrah are actually influencing Mount Scopus, or if Mount Scopus is again sort of uh, shielded from the events that are occurring just a few minutes away. So uh, Sheikh Jarrah is just one among uh, different events and different uh, you know, conflicts that are taking place and took place in the city since I've been at the Hebrew University. Uh, 
they they don't uh, influence uh, uh, the the uh, you know the life and realities in at the university uh, directly, but of course they 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 influence uh, the degree of uh, tension uh, at some points. Uh, not so much as Sheikh Jarrah, but the but last year's uh, war in May that took place in May was much more influential and went and got into the campus very radically and very strongly because people on both sides were very much affected and traumatized by by the different events taking place in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, in the uh, uh, mixed, uh, in parentheses, in quotation marks, uh, uh, towns, cities, Lida, Haifa, Akko, uh, other places. Um, so these events were much more traumatized and uh, was mu were much more traumatic and uh, I think I felt influenced day-to-day uh, -day realities at the university. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is a, uh, is a neighborhood that is, as you said, is uh, located literally like five minutes uh, drive from, from Mount Scopus. Uh, and there are students at the university who are very active in uh, in the uh, uh, Save Sheikh Jarrah movements and other uh, and other movements uh, taking place uh, as part of the uh, the conflict over Sheikh Jarrah, um, but again, it's in my experience, it affected uh, life in campus much less than last year's events in May. Now, before moving uh, and talk about uh, the history of Jerusalem, but I'm curious about something since you have this kind of experience. It goes across, you know, neighborhoods, areas, obviously students, education. Uh, the last two, since now Israel is reopening the borders to all travelers, including non-vaccinated, apparently. I was actually curious about what was your experience teaching in that corner of Jerusalem uh, during COVID? Uh, how did it play out, uh, you know, the, the outbreak of a pandemic and also you know, connected to it, the relationship with your students, whether, you know, from, from Israel and particularly those from, uh, from East Jerusalem? Uh, well, first of all, my, you know, part of COVID was during, as, as, as the rest of the world, uh, we taught on Zoom most for, for a long time. But when we came back to campus, um, it was interesting because many, we, we taught a, you know, in a hybrid way. So I was, you know, I was teaching in campus, but uh, I, I also opened Zoom so that I can, you know, still accommodate those students who are not vaccinated or who don't, who can't come to campus, etc. And then, of course, again, the kind of the isolation or the, the divisions between the different groups that I mentioned earlier came into play because Many of the Palestinian students uh, did not show up in campus and they were on Zoom, but they closed their cameras. They, their cameras were shut off uh, with, no, with no videos, so no one could see them. Uh, and that's because of, you know, different reasons for internet connection, lack of their working space, you name it. Again, some things that the Israeli students didn't understand and were kind of asking why don't we see the Palestinian students? And I had to explain to them, and that was part of me trying also to expose them to their realities in uh, East Jerusalem, this geographical area that is so close, but then again, so far away from them, right, mentally. So many of those Palestinian students haven't, haven't been to campus until this year. So for two years, uh, basically, haven't, uh, haven't uh, uh, studied face-to-face. Uh, um hopefully at the end, you know, it's, we're now on the, on, still on vacation, but hopefully when we get back to school in two weeks or so, every, everyone will show up in campus again. Um, but the, the experience, I think, again, of, um, of uh, teaching on Zoom and studying on Zoom is very, very different for Jewish Israelis and for Palestinians from East Jerusalem. These are two different realities, two different totally different challenges um, that students are facing. Well, let's move to uh, history. Uh, the, the, the current situation is rather uh, well, complex and grim, I would say. 
um, and perhaps with no real uh, you know solution, but certainly is is refreshing to see that there are you know people like yourself trying to at least explain and uh, you know sort of engage with with that from a different perspective. So your first work was very much on Jerusalem during the period of World War One, which obviously intersects very much with mine. And perhaps it's worth mentioning that uh, we got to know each other uh, because someone in the middle, a previous guest of the podcast, uh, Michelle Campos, bumped into myself uh, at the archives in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden we had this frenzy of like, oh my gosh, there are two people working on the same topic, lucky us from very different perspectives. But uh, we obviously share the interest uh, in, in Jerusalem during the period of uh, World War I and the late Ottoman uh, era. And uh, yeah, I was just wondering if you can give us a sense briefly about your work, your previous work on Jerusalem, uh, about this idea of uh, from empire to empire, why and how Jerusalem changed as a city from you know, one empire to, to another. And I remember very much also you coined this uh, sentence, and which also is an idea about a city changing hands. Yes, so uh, I'll just start by saying that uh, the, the story of this project was born basically, the seed was born from a very basic question that I asked myself back in my uh, days at Chicago when I was doing my PhD in Chicago at the University of Chicago. I asked myself what basically changed in the life of people, of Jerusalemites, of Jerusalem residents. Uh, in the morning of, let's say, December 12 or December 13, 1917, a day or two after General uh, Allenby entered the city, uh, this very, very heroic, famous entry from the Jaffa Gate, you know, uh, and basically in that moment, in this symbolic moment, basically occupied the city and ended 400 years of Ottoman rule in that city. And my basic, very basic question was, okay, so suddenly on that day, Jerusalem changed hands, right? Practically, symbolically, historically, you name it, from one empire to the, um, to the other, right? I mean, from the Ottoman Empire, from 400 years of Ottoman rule into suddenly the uh, British rule of the infidels, etc. you name it, uh, and uh, colonial rule, um, very foreign Christian rule, and uh, and what happened? What? How did it affect and how did it influence the life, the realities, uh, the ways of thinking of people in in the city? So that was basically the seed of what became a dissertation and later became a book. And uh, through this work, what I tried to do, the project was actually twofold. One was to try to work on or to write a history of a social history of World War I uh, within the realms of Jerusalem. So a micro history in a way of the city of Jerusalem during the war, social and urban history of a city facing a huge crisis of different kinds. Uh, but the emphasis would be on a social history of World War I, which is something that hasn't been done too much until that point historiographically uh, in Middle Eastern studies, of course. And the second, the second um, project was, or the second side of this project was to write a, 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 the history of a, the mixed city of Jerusalem. So look, to look at Jerusalem as a mixed locale, um, bringing in the picture as many of its uh, voices, residents and sources, primary sources as much as possible, and trying to uh, look or write the, a, a history of a, as a thick history of Jerusalem as much as possible in this transition period between the Ottoman and the British empires. And by this, I was also trying to question and challenge the, the periodization that we're so used to, the periodization of, you know, we are so used to look at Ottoman Palestine and mandatory Palestine. And we never ask, okay, but how did this transition, how did this process of transitioning from one empire to the empire to the other actually take place? So uh, in one of the chapters of the book, as you know, one of the project, one of the, the, that chapter was entitled When a City Changes Hands, because it was literally changing hands. But what did it mean to change hands? What did what did how did it affect the residents? How did it affect 
the psychic, how does it affect identity questions? Did people all of a sudden stop thinking about themselves as Ottomans and started thinking themselves about themselves as, uh, as British or under British Empire? Or what, what were they thinking? How did they envision themselves and their realities and the changing realities? Uh, so that's, that was a project that was um, in a way very brought, brought into the picture uh, different, different questions from also from different uh, kind of sub-disciplines and uh, areas of interest of mine, urban history, social history, um, the whole question of intercommunal relations. Uh, this is when I started becoming very, very interested also in the topic of um, Sephardi uh, studies and uh, Sephardi identity and Ottomanism and Ottoman identity, Zionism, all these isms uh, and ideologies uh, and identities uh, that uh, that were around, and how did they all, you know, coexisted? If they coexisted, how did they all live together? Sometimes in one people's mind. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I was always fascinated by this idea of uh, transitioning. You know, this idea of uh, one day you go to bed and you know, there's one regime ruling a place and the day after you wake up and actually that's gone and there's a new group of people coming in and it's real, it's happening. I guess to an extent we experienced that with COVID, like we were living our life and then all of a sudden we said, well, you need to be home and then that changed really. But it's in a way that was much more dramatic and certainly life-changing event, um, particularly with the surrender itself of Jerusalem. That brings me to ask you a couple of questions. Um, in the last 15 years, maybe 20 years, we certainly saw a, a great number of works being published, uh, but also uh, more public history, discussing, talking about uh, this period in time, 
sort of revising our understanding of Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era in the period of World War I. And I was wondering if you feel like there's still anything missing about that period that we don't know that maybe historians should investigate more or do you feel like, well, we have a you know, good deal now of a better understanding of, of a city in that period of time? I think that, uh, that uh, the history of Jerusalem in general has been cover covered uh, quite well during those uh, years. Uh, of course, with your work, with my work, with Michelle's work, with the... Uh, Salim Tamari, Sam Nassar. Salim I mean, we, we can name it like uh, quite a few, Louis, exactly, a whole group and so of forth. People, a whole group of people who have been uh, working on, uh, on Jerusalem uh, uh, during, those, during those years. I think what is missing about the history of Jerusalem, and this is something that I'm trying to touch upon now, uh, me and some other scholars, is actually the uh, period after 1948, uh, which is a fascinating period as well, the, the, the period of the um, divided city. But if you're asking me specifically about World War I, I would say I actually think that there's a lot to be done still about the war, but not in Jerusalem maybe in other cities, maybe in other regions in Palestine, Eretz Israel, I mean, uh, the rural areas, there's a lot to be done. I mean, wars in general, I find are fascinating um, and bring in fascinating questions, uh, especially when you try to approach them from the social point of view, cultural point of view, um, uh, questions that have to do really with the, with the way people are functioning during the war, surviving the war. So I think that with World War I, uh, there's a lot to be done, but not necessarily on, on Jerusalem itself. Uh, uh, and again, and I guess another point I wanted to ask you is very much about uh, sources available. I mean, I remember you unpacked, uh, uh, you know, the diary of his uh, Jerusalemite, San Turjman, which changed, you know, the work of many people and certainly have become like, uh, you know, a very important feature in understanding what was going on in the city and also in terms of uh, intercommunal relations be, you know, that were unfolding in the city itself throughout the war period. And I, I was just wondering if you can give us a sense of, uh, you know, who was Isan Turjman, how you got into the diary, you know, how did it change your perspective over the history of the city looking at this particular uh, diary? So uh, the diary of Xantul Jaman was one of the treasures, definitely of my, uh, one of the main findings or the findings that I was most proud of uh, in, my, in, my, uh, in my research. Uh, and it, I, I ran into it completely by chance following a footnote in, a Yosh, in late Yoshua Porat's uh, book, uh, where he mentioned in passing, really in passing a, a diary of a, a Muslim soldier uh, which is located, which served, who served in uh, the Ottoman headquarters in Jerusalem during World War One, and uh, kind of uh, leading the and, and is kept in the uh, manuscript department of the National uh, Library at, uh, at the Hebrew University. And I was very, very excited uh, to run into this footnote, and I immediately, of course, ran to the library. <laughs> Uh, rushed to the library to find this fascinating uh, diary, 196 pages long, handwritten, uh, very hard to decipher, written in a pseudonym, pseudonym of uh, uh, Adel Salah. It was uh, Salim Tamari, who, uh, Professor Salim Tamari, who uh, figured the history of uh, the writer, uh, of the author of the diary, and they revealed the fact that the name, the real uh, diarist is uh, Ihsan Turjeman. And, um, uh, but, but I, was, I was lucky enough to actually hold the diary in my hands and start working on it. And I ended up uh, writing a whole, almost a whole chapter uh, based only on this account, which was absolutely fascinating. Like to also to think about, about this particular source uh, metho methodologically, what does it mean to analyze a person's diary when he never intended this diary to become public or found? obviously never, never imagined that it would end up in the Jewish National University Library at Givat Ram in Israel. So, um, so it, it also, uh, other than the, the, the actual findings and what I read in the diary and what I discovered, 
just the methodological questions were fascinating for me and forced me to think very critically about how to analyze such a source um, and how to make use of it. Uh, and yes, as you said, the diary is now very famous. Uh, again, thanks for uh, thanks to Selim, Selim, Selim Tamari's work on it and the transliteration and publication of the diary. So I used it when it was really raw, uh, really a kind of a raw material. Yeah, I suppose one of the uh, probably steps is to, again, try to find more and more material coming from that period of time, not just in Jerusalem, from, but from all of Palestine, which I'm pretty sure all of these treasures are hidden somewhere, but uh, still need to be found. I want to ask you something about, again, you know, the period of the war. You, you've wrote extensively about uh, the question of uh, humanitarianism. You recently also published an article which doesn't really cover the war, but goes a little bit beyond uh, about the American colony. And so I, I was just wondering, you know, what was going on in Jerusalem in terms of uh, relief and this idea of uh, humanitarianism. So, you know, the organization of uh, help towards uh, communities in Jerusalem. So the, the, there's a vast literature about humanitarianism, of course. Keith Wittenpow and others have, uh, have written extensively uh, about it. What I, was, um, what I did in my, in my first project was to look at the humanitarian projects during the war itself. And I was trying to see, again, whether, um, whether the different uh, humanitarian or relief work were based on uh, specific communities or whether they were cross-communal, whether there were some um, projects that, that uh, were uh, organized by the city, cities, uh, the, by Jerusalem is a municipality or by the Ottoman authorities, or whether each community had its own kind of network and relief uh, projects uh, and, and work that has been done. Uh, so that was that uh, part of the work. The work that you mentioned on uh, the American colony is in a way in a way different because um, it bring, it brings into the picture. First of all, it's on a slightly different period. It's uh, the the historical context is right after World War One, and it's a project that is based on two albums, photo photography uh, photo albums, which were. Um, uh, produced and found at the library, or at the archive of the American colony in Jerusalem and at the Library of Congress. And uh, that work brought into the, was fascinating for me from other reasons. It was fascinating because it introduced questions of human, humanitarianism, the way they are presented uh, over photo albums and how photography plays a role, an important role in different humanitarian projects within the city of Jerusalem, but also outside of the city of Jerusalem. And the context uh, was that uh, the discover the, the, the uh, two um, photo albums, the document, which was operated in the American colony by the American colony in Jerusalem, uh, and that hosted girls who, many of whom were um, victims of the war. Uh, whose families abandoned them, who were found on the streets, who were dropped by the foot, footsteps of the American colony. And these are stories that we are familiar with regarding the war. So these are girls who actually survived the war and were uh, raised for several years in the orphanage of the American colony. And the albums really kind of document the life of the girls and the work that is being done by the orphanage and by the American colony. And it's targeting the donors that are contributing or donating money to support the girls and to support this institution. So the question of humanitarianism and humanitarian aid, the whole discourse about humanitarianism is, is uh, taking a different shape there in that, in that particular um, uh, project that I, that, I, uh, that I wrote. And I just want to remind that there is an episode that I recorded with uh, Rachel Lev, who is the yes. uh, archivist of yes. the American Colony Collection, which at the moment I think it's closed due to financial reasons, but it's an amazing uh, photographic collection that really gives us a sense of a Jerusalem that for many probably is completely unknown and neglected, but uh, it does exist and it's available. And more importantly, yes, it's accessible. Let me take this opportunity to give a, a huge credit uh, and shout out to uh, Rachel Lev, Rachel Lev, 
uh, the archivist and the curator of the American Colony Archive. And the American Colony Collection in Jerusalem is not, offers not only a huge, uh, is, is not only a treasure in terms of the photography um, products of the American Photography Department of the Colony, but also in other ways of, as well. The American Colony was an amazing institution that was engaged in many, many things, many projects in the city. A, a very, an unusual, really an unusual uh, institution that I think its history is yet to be told um, and, and needs to be told. And of course, the fact that the archive is now closed is a pity. And I hope it will change uh, soon rather than sooner rather than later, because it's a real treasure for historians and for people who are eager to learn more about the history of the city and of this institution in particular. Yeah, some people may only think about uh, the American colony as the hotel, but uh, there's definitely more than that. Definitely more than the, just the hotel. I just want to move to uh, your uh, to more contemporary work. And I'm aware that you are currently working on, uh, on something with your co-author of the book Oriental Neighbors um, about Musrara. But let me take a step back. So Oriental Neighbors, Middle Eastern Jews and Arabs, in mandatory Palestine. Can you just briefly give us a sense of uh, what the, the book is about and also why it turned out to be so controversial, particularly its translation uh, in Hebrew? The book is, the, first of all, I, I just want to emphasize that this book was co-authored by me and uh, Dr. Moshe Naor from the University of Haifa, Department of Israel History. And uh, so it's a totally a joint project of both of us, which was an amazing, attempt to work together and we're still working together and we're it's it, it was so much fun really and it is so much fun to work together uh, the book is about um, the history and the relations between uh, jews coming from the middle east uh, oriental jews we can call them oriental jews we can call them local jews we can call them arab jews they call themselves in different ways and names and we try to follow those names. Uh, uh, so between Oriental Jews and Arabs uh, who lived in a mandatory Palestine, in a way, our departing point is uh, the late Ottoman period when, um, when Sephardi Jews, Oriental Jews uh, held a very, 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 very important political role uh, within the Ottoman uh, within within the local Ottoman administration, since they were uh, the they were the representatives of the Jewish millet, um, unlike the Ashkenazi Jews who were not representatives of the Jewish millet and did not hold Ottoman citizenship mostly. Uh, and when in the again when the empires changed, going back to the other project, when the empire changed and all of a sudden the uh, colonial the British colonial period started. Um, the balance of power within the Jewish community has changed as well. And those uh, Ottoman, previously Ottoman citizenship uh, Sephardi Jews had to find themselves a new political project in a way and to revive their political power. And one of the ways of doing that was uh, by trying to situate themselves as uh, mediators, what we argue as many mediators between uh, the Jewish and the Arab community, and especially between the Zionist movement and the labor Zionist establishment, uh, composed of many of mainly Ashkenazi Jews and uh, the Arab community in Palestine. And the book, uh, which is divided into five chapters, each of the chapters deals with a different field of investigation. So we have the political uh, forms of mediation, political mediations, which were not at all a homogenous and the different voices we're trying to bring uh, into the picture, the different uh, voices, uh, uh, political voices and perceptions uh, that were heard and were and and the different activists and organizations that were in the scene. And then we have a chapter about um, cultural and um, and linguistic and uh, cultural, I would say, mediation through the realms of newspapers and uh, books and studying of Arabic, uh, Amiya and Pusha, uh, colloquial Arabic and uh, standard Arabic, and then 
a chapter about living in the life in the mixed cities and in the oriental, what we call oriental ghettos, uh, and in the margins of the mixed cities, such as the neighborhood of uh, Manshie and uh, the Yemenite uh, neighborhood in, in the margins of Tel Aviv and Jaffa, Hart el Yehud in Haifa and other neighborhoods. So trying to locate the ways in which people were, Oriental Jews were crossing between one world to the other, between their, between the Orient and the Arab culture and Arabic language and the Ashkenazi white city uh, in the case of Tel Aviv. And then another chapter that deals with the phenomena of Mistarvim um, or of Jews uh, who were <laughs> employed by the paramilitary groups, especially Haganah and Palmach, uh, to work as uh, in, in gathering intelligence as spies, as terrorists, basically, in many cases, based on their appearance and their, and the, their black appearance as Arabs, the language they spoke, Arabic, etc. And the idea is really to try and, um, and highlight the existence of this group, which hasn't been highlighted enough, we think, now it's of course much more discussed and, uh, and dealt with, but to highlight the existence and the importance and the centrality and the role of this group of people, of the Oriental Jews as a very particular, um, a, a very, very special and particular group within the history of the conflict, of the Zionist movement, of the Yeshuv, the Jewish community in Israel, of the relations between Jews and Arabs. So in general, in very, very large, big terms, this is the, this is the project. And I was wondering, since you're still working with Emotion Hour as your co-author about this uh, new project that you are developing about uh, the neighborhood of Jerusalem, Musrara. Uh, yes, so here we are, in a way it continues part of the, especially one of the chapters in Oriental Neighbors, uh, where we deal with the urban environment. Uh, regarding uh, Musrara, so uh, what, what we're doing there is we moved into a, a different period, the later period after 40, between 48 and 67, and we're looking at a neighborhood that is, um, that is a trapped, we call it a trapped neighborhood, a neighborhood that is trapped or bordered between two borders. One is physical, which is located on the eastern part, the eastern border that separated West Jerusalem from East Jerusalem, between 49 and 67, and the Western border, which is basically a mental imagined border uh, between, East, between uh, uh, Jerusalem of the new immigrants, the newcomers, the Oriental Jews who lived in Musrara in very, very hard conditions, and West Jerusalem, where, which was much, much more you know, wealthy and, uh, and uh, was again populated some of its neighborhoods neighborhoods by Ashkenazi Jews. And our argument and what we're trying to do in this article, in this paper, is to try and um, locate, first of all, to locate the, this double border, the Eastern physical border versus the Western imagined border, try to find out and investigate how these borders were crossed, if they were crossed, and at the end, our conclusion is that the Eastern border, even though it was a, a physical border, a barbed wire, consisted of a barbed, a barbed wire, a wall that separated the Eastern part of the city, Jordanian part of the city, Palestinian part of the city from the Western Jewish Israeli part of the city, this, this border was in many ways much easier to cross than the Western border that actually never really existed and was only an imagined border, but that was the border that separated between the, the Eastern and Oriental uh, existence of the residents of Musrara coming mainly from Morocco, Algeria, Iraq, uh, you know, North Africa and the Middle East in general, and the Western part of the city, which was again, you know, based in part on uh, German Jews, uh, Etc. So we're trying to portray here a neighborhood that is trapped basically between the two borders. And that's a, a project that uh, 
is uh, still ongoing in many ways for us and is fascinating. Uh, we, we really enormously enjoyed working on it together again, um, using new sources for us. Um, uh, and it will hopefully be continued. We'll still be, we still have some ideas uh, on how to develop it further. I guess, as you mentioned, you know, people living in Musrara had probably much more commonalities with, uh, for instance, Sari Nusebe, that in his memoirs is talking about, you know, looking at his house in Musrara, but across the border. And certainly these people share more than certainly with uh, the people in West Jerusalem. I have one last question. You know, our conversation took uh, different directions, but I was just wondering if there's anything that I didn't ask, but you want to talk about. I don't know. I mean, I think that the city of Jerusalem is full of surprises, full of untapped sources for historians. I would like to raise, um, to, if, speaking of sources, to raise the awareness of, a, a, you know, the big question of what is going to happen with the city with the Jerusalem Municipal Archive, which is an issue that uh, me and other scholars and and, uh, and other scholars. Uh, Noah, Noah Rubin, Dr. Noah Rubin, Professor Menachem Klein, and others are very, very concerned about what will happen with this archive, which is a real treasure. Uh, so I think that in a way, Jerusalem is uh, yet to be discovered, fully discovered, and maybe it will never be fully discovered. Fascinating city, a city of, you know, of uh, lots of uh, wonders and uh, challenges until today, of course, uh, mysteries and uh, untapped sources that are yet to be explored and untapped questions that yet to be is, are yet to be asked. This was Abigail Jacobson, currently senior lecturer in the Department of Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, author of From Empire to Empire, Jerusalem Between Ottoman and British Rule, published in 2011, and with Moshe Maor, author of Oriental Neighbors, Middle Eastern Jews and Arabs in Mandatory Palestine. Abigail, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. 